Welcome back to Off the Cuff, Evacor Healthcare's podcast. I'm Emily Coe, your host. Today, we're going to continue our oncology discussion with Dr. Dee McLeod, Associate Medical Director at Evacor, and Dr. Melvin Gaskins, Medical Director at Evacor. Hi, Dr. Gaskins and Dr. McLeod. How are you? Hey. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Uh, so let's hear a little bit more about each of you. Dr. McLeod, would you mind um, giving us a, a little bit about your background and what brought you to Evacor? Yeah, I'm originally from New York. Um, I was in community oncology um, for over 10 years. And then with trying to balance work and family life, um, I decided to make the change over to Evacor and still remain with oncology, which I love. Dr. Gaskins, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a native Washingtonian. Not many of us are around here, but uh, yeah, born and raised in this area. And uh, I was in a private medical practice uh, combined with uh, academic practice for about 27 years. Uh, I've been with Evercore now four years. And, uh, you know, it's given me a chance to um, sort of look at uh, things from another perspective than you would in practice, um, but also continue to keep in mind that uh, decisions we make uh, affect people in general. Yeah, that's great, thank you. Um, and so having, um, as oncologists, you're probably very familiar with oncology trials and um, getting patients um, enrolled in clinical trials. Do you have a lot of experience, um, either of you, in enrolling patients in oncology clinical trials? I do. Um, back when I was in a community practice, I was very involved in getting patients um, enrolled in clinical trials within our own practice there. But also, when I was in medical school, my mom had breast cancer, so I was trying to find her clinical trials. So I do know what it is like when you're on the patient side and trying to advocate for them, as well as when you're on the provider side and you're trying to find the right fit for your patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I also, as, as part of my practice, I worked out of the Howard University Cancer Center, and um, we participated in a number of uh, national clinical trials. Um, we especially focused on trying to increase the number of minorities that were enrolled in these clinical trials. Has that, have you seen that participation rate increase um, over time, or has it kind of remained, remained stable? It's still lagging, though, the majority of the population. Um, a lot of that has to do with a lot of cultural norms um, as well, but it's still not to where it needs to be. It's still lagging. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's always been a difficult problem and a, um, a problem that you can't really uh, pinpoint on one particular thing. Um, some years back uh, uh, from Howard uh, uh, Cancer Center, uh, we published some findings about enrolling African-Americans uh, in clinical trials uh, that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. One of the unusual things that we found, probably we had more patients that were ineligible due to the strict criteria of clinical trials mm -hmm. and not necessarily because they didn't want to participate in clinical trials. And when you say um, strict criteria, just for our listeners, um, maybe the um, maybe the level of 
disease severity wasn't great enough or... Um... Right, and also uh, comorbid conditions, such as uh, you have to make sure your blood pressure is controlled. Mm -hmm. So there may be a higher number of African-Americans with uncontrolled hypertension. You have to have your uh, diabetes under control. Mm -hmm. um, so a number of comorbid conditions would mm -hmm. make these patients ineligible as opposed to the fact that they didn't want to participate in that clinical trial. Right. Has that changed at all, those criteria? Are those, I mean, I guess that's probably pretty standard across the board for oncology. You have to have your comorbidities in check. Uh, um, that's correct. When you're doing a clinical yeah. trial, you want to make sure that um, other factors don't influence the results. And so, yeah. um, you know, you're sort of relegated to having uh, strict criteria. On the other hand, um, you know, once something gets approved in the real world, um, you do have patients with uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes and, right. you know, probably cardiac problems and those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it goes back to efficacy versus effectiveness. Efficacy is how well it works in a tightly controlled setting, such as a clinical exactly. trial versus effectiveness uh, in the community. So... Um, that's really fascinating. I was looking up um, some um, statistics on um, disparities in oncology. And um, first, I just want to define disparity for, again, for our listeners who uh, may be listening to this you know, type of clinical conversation for the first time. But um, the National Cancer Institute defines um, um, health, cancer health disparities um, as happening when there are higher rates of new diagnoses and cancer death rates among certain races, ethnicities, or population groups. The National Cancer Institute um, states that uh, Blacks and African-Americans have higher death rates than all other racial and ethnic groups for most cancer types, not all, but most. Um, and that um, Black and African-American women have the highest death rates um, from, um, from cancer. Um, and American Indians and Alaska Natives have higher death rates from kidney cancer, the rural and urban um, disparities exist. The incidence rates of colorectal, lung, and cervical cancers are much higher in rural Appalachia areas than in urban areas in that region. If there's one thing as oncology providers that you could do to help bridge this gap in disparities. It's not just one thing, I would, I would say. Because yeah, it's yeah. just, um, especially when you're dealing with Appalachia, you know, anytime you're dealing with a rural community, you have people have lack of access, you know, how are you gonna get to them? Um, yes. In some communities, even in the urban communities, you know, it is the communication, it's the education, and it's the awareness. And I think mm -hmm. as providers, that's when we can, um, you know, step in as far as that's concerned, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I worked in um, rural Mississippi for a, a long period of time in the 90s, um, Jackson Heart Study and some diabetes studies. Um, and just as you said, lack of access. I mean, it's, you know, many folks have to rely on, you know, someone, you know, three miles away with a car to even get them to the rural clinic or to the hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. So, um, yeah, very real um, barriers that a lot of folks might take for granted that they don't know that those barriers exist. Lack of access is, is, is a, a very real thing. I, um, the last couple of years of my practice, I participated in a program uh, to provide oncology services 
in the one of the poorest wards in Washington, D.C. And this was because there were no oncologists in that part of Washington, D.C. And so anybody in that area would have to travel mm -hmm. to see an oncologist. One of the other things we found out in that program too, we, we tended to see a lot of younger people with lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, when looking at it statistically, that poor area actually had the largest density of places where you could buy cigarettes. However, the lowest uh, uh, density of places where you could find fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And so these type of things uh, are sort of inherent, uh, creates inherent bias as, as uh, in, in terms of disparities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is a, a societal uh, effort, it has to happen at many, many levels um, to truly affect change. In talking about um, you know, alternate ways to address disparities, um, Dr. Gaskins, I know you are very familiar with the CAR-T trials. Um, do you think um, once we get folks, so um, first of all, let's stop. And if you want to, um, could you explain to our audience um, what CAR-T is? Um, and then I maybe want to talk about um, how this could help um, bridge gaps and disparities with um, improved treatments. Uh, CAR-T is a, a, a very complicated thing, and I'm going to give you a, a simple explanation. Okay? Great. <laughs> That's so, good. Simple is so, good. <laughs> so CAR-T sort of, if you want to think of it as a way to have your own uh, cells fight against cancer. So the way it works, they, they, they take out your T cells, and these are, these are cells that, that normally should fight against infections and cancer and things. And they take these cells out of your body and then they add something to it, something that sort of targets a uh, cancer cells. And that's where we get this CAR-T. It stands for chimeric um, antigen receptor immunotherapy. And so then they add this to your T cells and then they sort of grow them. And so you, so you have a lot of these cells. And then the next step is to put it back in you so these cells will directly attack those cancer cells. And, and you know, it, when it works, it works beautifully because uh, it, it's almost a natural way to, to just kill cancer cells. Um, so that, that's the simple explanation of yeah. heart disease. No, that's great, that's great. And um, what, how long does it typically take? So once they extract the T cells and then add that special something to it um, and let it grow. What's that time frame? Time frame will be different depending on which um, cancer that you're um, you're looking at, because it's used for I know diffuse large B cell lymphomas, your um, ALLs, your multiple myeloma as well. So the patient has to come in, and at first they have to extract their T cells first, and then they go to the second part where they add the gene therapy and add the receptor to it, and then the patient has to go back after that and then get the infusion of the um, the chimeric antigen receptor with the T cells. Wow, that's fascinating. That's amazing. Um, and is this FDA approved yet for any? types of cancer? Is FDA approved for uh, many types of cancers? Um, your lymphomas, your large B cell lymphomas, follicular lymphomas, 
um, your um, acute lymphoblastic leukemias. And um, I believe in March, they had another one, a BEMCA, for uh, multiple myeloma. And every time you look, it's getting more and more indications mm -hmm. um, as, as time goes on. That's but the great. cost, but the cost. <laughs> It yeah. comes with the price, it comes with a hefty price. And when you talk about this um, disparities, um, you, these medications can be well over, over $400,000. It's gonna be different with each health plan, but it's gonna be you know, expensive for those people who qualify. Cause usually that means that they have failed um, several lines of therapy mm -hmm. first, and then they will be able to qualify. Oh, okay. Some so is more than other. Yeah. So okay. like multiple myeloma, you have to have failed four lines of different therapy and then you'll be able to qualify. Some you have to, you know, fail two lines of therapy and then you mm -hmm. would be able to qualify. Wow. Yeah. Does that um, having to fail um, the first um, lines of therapy, does that put the patient's mortality at risk? So by the time they fail that and then um, and then they get the CAR-T, does, I mean, is it, I mean, too late, or I mean, it's not too late, but I mean, wouldn't it be better yeah. if we could just give it to them first line of treatment? Right, they have to prove that it works better than the initial therapies that are already approved before okay. they would be able to use it in that situation. And they, they haven't okay. been able to do that yet. Okay, got it. Uh, and speaking of um, um, adding to the knowledge of CAR-T, uh, the speed of innovations in oncology research is mind-boggling. So a 2011 study in the transactions of the American Clinical and Climatological Association um, found that or presented um, data that show back in 1950, um, the rate of doubling um, medical knowledge was 50 years. Um, fast forward to um, 2020, um, just 73 days and medical knowledge is doubled. So I would imagine a lot of that knowledge is specific to oncology because there are so many trials ongoing. Um, I see the alerts from the NCC and I get those emails. Um, how do we, you know, as Evacor, um, how do we take that information and, and keep it current um, and support our providers um, when we're working with them? Well, at Evacor, um, we do work closely with the pharmacists as well as um, nurses. Anytime that there's a new drug that comes out, whether it's FDA indicated or a new indication, um, expanded indication, um, we, are, we are made aware of these. And then also when we talk to the providers, we can let them know what is available to them based in real time of something that has recently been approved or not. Yeah, and I think all of us, we, we definitely have a concern that we want to make sure that everybody gets the right care that um, they're supposed to get. And I know um, being on the clinical guidelines side of the house, um, you know, we update the guidelines whenever there's a positive change in the evidence. Um, mm -hmm. that, I mean, any evidence, you know, we, we keep our guidelines um, up to date, but especially when there's an update that um, is especially positive for patients. Um, we like to get those changes out um, for our providers um, as soon as possible. Um, sometimes that happens in oncology, you know, every couple of months that we have to do that, so. I will say one thing that we do at Evacor is like anytime somebody has a request for a chemotherapy regimen, we now ask them, you know, um, do you want your patient, you know, enrolled or do you want to receive any information about any clinical trials? So I think that way you will be able to include more people because you're giving everybody the same option. 
mm-hmm. you know, having this clinical trials, we can find out what's available for you. Yeah, that's great. Oh, and that brings up a great point. So um, I know, you know a lot of folks think of clinical trials as a last resort. Um, so, but really they can't, they don't have to be a last resort resort for patients when they first present um, with cancer. Um, so are, can you touch on that a little bit? Sure, if you have some cancers that um, are aggressive and are known to have a poor outcome, you can, even though they might have some standard of care, you might offer them um, a clinical trial. I know recently they have the um, pembrolizumab, which is immunotherapy that has been added upfront in breast cancer with the chemotherapy. But those patients that they will, they offered that to are patients who would have received you know, traditional chemotherapy. So it's not just people who are, you know, on the last resort. These are people, you know, in the beginning of their treatment. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And and probably it's changed over the years. Um, if you think of uh, years ago, people thought chemotherapy was only as a last resort. Mm-hmm. And, and so now they're thinking clinical trials are only the last resort, but but that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, you may just be finding out if something is just a little bit better than what's already out there. Um, you know, a lot of people are worried about being experimented on, but clinical trials are very controlled. Um, and you're made aware of all possible side effects. Um, you have actually probably better access than if you were not on a clinical trial. And, and sometimes clinical trials are only using different combinations of things we've already been using, or they may add one thing new to it. Um, and so those probably aren't quite as experimental as, as a lot of people think of clinical trials. Yeah, that's a great clarification. Um, and so now that we all kind of thought COVID was behind us a little bit, and now it's coming back, uh, um, unfortunately, um, like, um, like crazy, how has COVID, um, affected patient care, patient oncology care? Um, have they, um, been able to continue? Did folks have to stop? Are you hear, you know, stories of people not being able to get the care that they need because of all the COVID patients, um, in the hospitals? Um, do you feel that it's impacted, um, oncology care? I would say a delay in people doing the necessary screenings. I would say, um, because when you stopped a lot of these elective procedures and different things, um, initially when it was first started, people weren't gonna get their screening colonoscopies like they should. Maybe people were very you know, worried um, about the COVID cases were very high in the area. So they weren't getting the screening mammograms the way that they should be. So it's probably a delay in finding things at an earlier stage. I, I think we'll probably have more and more information about that. People who've delayed necessary screenings that they should have had. Yeah, yeah, there's going to probably, you're right, going to be some interesting data on that in the next couple of years as far mm-hmm. as um, incidence rates. One of the things just I, 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 I always try to express to people um, when they think about what we're doing here at Evercore in terms of authorizations, and, and I think the general thought is that we're here to just deny things, to stop people from getting treatment or, or stop you know, getting expensive drugs. 
And that's absolutely not the case at all. Um, you know, we use evidence-based guidelines, which uh, uh, especially the NCCN guidelines, which are available to everybody uh, on the internet. And, um, you know, anything that is FDA approved, uh, of, of course we would approve. We're trying to probably uh, hold up things not being used as they're supposed to be used, only in those cases. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, most things will get approved if they're supported by evidence-based guidelines. Yeah, and just to echo what Dr. Gaskin say, you said, um, we're looking at the efficacy of a lot of the, um, the medications, the safety of it, um, you know, as well. And um, we do use the NCCN comprehensive um, guidelines, you know, for that. And if something is FDA approved and it's not even in the guidelines, you know, they, it can also be approved as well. So we're just here to try to make sure the patient gets the best available um, regimen for them based on the um, evidence and the data. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the key phrase is uh, making sure they don't get inappropriate care. That's correct. Uh, well, Dr. Gaskins, Dr. McLeod, this has been a wonderful conversation today. Uh, I enjoyed uh, talking to you about oncology and clinical trials and CAR-T and, and um, disparities in oncology care. Um, have a great day, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you again for joining Off the Cuff, Evacore Healthcare's podcast, and I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.